Obadiah, when I was a kid going to elementary school out in Seattle where I grew up, I have clear memory of every Valentine's Day. We made these little pockets and hung them on the outside of our school desks, yes. you know, and everybody made Valentine's and you walked around. There was a time in the school day where you got to drop a Valentine into everybody's pocket. And, you know, when I got home, my mom and dad had some kind of chocolate candy for me or or those little hearts you know that say be mine yes yes. i mean did you did you have that when you were growing up had the same thing jim just exchanging the valentine cards at school and knowing that you were kind of little in love with a little young lady that's in the first grade i'm telling you it was a special day for me jim you i'm telling you i can see the girl and i know her name her first name is sarah will protect her innocence without giving her last name in the second grade who gave me a kiss. Oh. Okay, we're talking about Valentine's stuff here. And as we think about that, it's, of course, the stuff of childhood, but it also becomes the stuff of adulthood. Yes, it does. Because all of us are wired to be in relationship, and there's something in all of us that longs to have that kind of romance in life. And it all connects here at Valentine's, St. Valentine's. Okay, now this is a real guy. Yes, he is. I mean, do you have any idea when he lived? Many centuries ago. (laughs) A long time ago. (laughs) And what we know is there was a real person named Valentine, and he lived in the third century after Christ during the reign of the emperor in Rome named Claudius II. Now, those Roman emperors weren't always really nice guys. And Claudius II has some, you know, questionable aspects of his own character and reign. And one of those was he tried to outlaw marriage for a season because he was trying to get guys to sign up to go to the front lines. We all have this image in our mind, I think, of the Roman Empire in those years. It's fighting against the Goths or whoever out in the farther northern frontier of Europe. And he can't get enough guys to sign up. They're just not going to be Roman legionnaires anymore. And his theory is The reason they're not signing up is they're getting married. They've got all this romance at home. Why would I want to go hundreds of miles away, traipsing across cold northern climb of northern Europe when I could be here in Italy under the sunshine with my true love? I mean, that's that's kind of the the way the story is understood. Though, you know, the details are a little bit fuzzy. There's enough witness from multiple sources to help us know that something like this was going on and he outlawed marriage. And Valentine was a Christian pastor. And he had these guys who were being drawn to Jesus, and it's especially interesting to know that Valentine lived in a world where Roman, secular, pagan culture was about polygamy and all kind of sexual license, and yet these guys were being drawn into the gospel of Christ, these young men, and and they wanted to get married, and they wanted to do so within a Christian context, and the emperor says, you can't do that, I need you out on the front lines, and Valentine says, well, wait a minute, it's really healthy, it is righteous, it is good for men and women to be married and make a promise to each other for a lifetime. And so Valentine starts officiating these weddings, even though it's against the law. Secretly, I think, too, also, Jim. Well, you had to, because the emperor doesn't want it to happen. But he would not sacrifice his principles or his devotion to his flock. And so he officiated the weddings, and he encouraged young men and women to get married in this season. And all of this leads him to imprisonment because the Roman government, its authorities discover what's going on. They throw him in jail. In time, he is murdered and martyred for his faith. Now, there are disputes about how many things took place and what really happened and so on. But what I've given is just kind of a bare outline of a story that is generally accepted. In fact, 
one of the earliest houses of Christian worship in the world has been excavated, and it was dedicated to Valentine. He was a real guy who was revered for his commitment to doing the right thing and for honoring Christian marriage. And that is where St. Valentine's Day gets its little bit of romantic groove, how a feast day in a liturgical church tradition was translated into a cultural phenomenon. Now, there's a couple other things here. Yes. Obadiah, ancient Rome has pagan festivals. Valentine lived in a time when the empire was not predominantly Christian. It didn't have a lot of Christians in positions of influence. So he was countercultural. The culture of his time favored all kinds of romance, of course, because every culture has romance, but often without the boundaries that we see in the New Testament. And it was the custom then in February of the year in pagan Rome to match up boys and girls who would draw names out of a hat and they'd be paired up for a year. And who knows what they might do together for that year? (laughs) Because the boundaries of marriage, as we understand them as a kind of sexual boundary as well as a relational one, weren't so well understood or, or understood differently in that ancient Roman world. Well, that has kind of come into the mix. So as Valentine and his feast day came to represent Christian marriage and romance, it was merged into this idea of pairing up in February. Oh, and then in Northern Europe, we have birds and nature, which is getting ready for spring. spring. And so, you know, if that little egg is going to hatch in March or April, something's got to be going on in February. That concept of people looking at their world around them made February this time of, you know, we better get together. And all of that is packaged now in this Valentine's Day phenom. But for all of that that we might think is frivolous, even though it has some roots in history, Obadiah, there's some serious stuff about romance that we need to consider. Yes, it is. And it's a letter. And would you say that even the Bible speaks about romance? Yes, it does. (laughs) Good and bad, Jim. (laughs) I mean, the Bible shows us some real-life stories of people who got into the romance train, and sometimes it works really well, and sometimes it's a mess-up. And the Bible can give us lessons from both kinds of stories to help us land well. Yes. When we come back, let's talk about one of those famous couples in the Bible that helps us understand what we might do today on the romantic side of our lives. Okay, Obadiah, as we're in February talking about what I might call holy romance. Okay. Let's run right to the scripture. In the book of Genesis, we have a lot of romance going on, but in that book, let's look at one particular couple, and their story is long, but I've chosen just a few verses uh, to tell their story, how they get together. Abraham has a son named Isaac. What is Isaac going to do? He wants to get married. How are we going to make that happen? What do we do? Now, this is an ancient world. We don't know exactly when Abraham lived, but certainly he lived millennia before Christ, which makes it many millennia removed from us. But the wonder of the Bible is that even though time has marched on, people are still the same. Culture changes sometimes, but people's heart cry and the fundamentals of human relationships are always the same. So his story is still our story. Genesis chapter 24. I'm going to take us a little way into the story, Obadiah, and then I'm going to ask you to pick it up. This is how Isaac is going to fall in love and find a wife. Genesis chapter 24, verse 1. This is the New Living Translation. Abraham was now a very old man, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. One day, Abraham said to his oldest servant, 
the man in charge of his household, take an oath by putting your hand under my thigh. Okay, let's just stop here. Kind of odd. That's a cultural norm. But in those days, if you really wanted to make a promise that was going to be witnessed as binding, you put your hand under the thigh of another guy. And so that's the custom, and so he does. We might say, let's just shake hands on it. And you know what, Obadiah? I'm glad I live today where I can just shake your hand. (laughs) But the servants asked, put your hand under my thigh, because this is your handshake for me. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not allow my son, my son Isaac, to marry one of these local Canaanite women. Go instead to my homeland, to my relatives, and find a wife there for my son Isaac. I live in a strange land. I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. I'm in a culture that I don't agree with and that I don't own common values with. So I want you to promise me, even as I'm an old guy, don't let my boy get mixed up with one of these girls who has a different values frame. That's what he's saying. The servant asked, but what if I can't find a young woman who's willing to travel so far from home? Should I take then Isaac to live among your relatives in the land you came from, which is quite a distance. No, Abraham responded, be careful never to take my son back there. For the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and my native land, solemnly promised to give this land to my descendants. He will send his angel ahead of you, and he will see to it that you find a wife there for my son. If she's unwilling to come back with you, then you are free from this oath of mine. But under no circumstances are you to take my son there. Here, Abraham is acknowledging that God has a plan for his life. God called him to this part of the world, and he knows his son is to live there. So let's not mess that up. Abraham believes the promise of God, but he needs to have a wife who shares our values, which means you'll have to go a far distance to find someone like that. And And that's what he's emphasizing. So the servant took an oath by putting his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham. He swore to follow Abraham's instructions. Then he loaded 10 of Abraham's camels. Let's call these his SUVs. (laughs) He loaded 10 of them up with all kinds of expensive gifts from his master. And he traveled to distant Aram Naaram. There he went to the town where Abraham's brother Nahor had settled. He made the camels kneel beside a well just outside the town. It was evening, and the women were coming out to draw water. I've got the SUVs packed. I don't have a credit card. I've got to have trinkets and gifts to give along the way. This is how I'm going to pay for the trip. Now I'm a long ways away. I've got to my destination. I'm going to stop at the local motel or the eatery or the Dairy Queen. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Here I am, and while... The servant is there. Some of the locals gather. Some of these local women come. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, the servant prayed, please give me success today and show unfailing love to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing here beside this spring and the young women of the town are coming out to draw water. This is my request. I will ask one of them, please give me a drink from your jug. And if she says, yes, have a drink and I will water your camels too... Let her be the one you have selected as Isaac's wife. This is how I will know that you have shown unfailing love to my master. Important point right here before you pick up the story, Obadiah. The servant is on a mission of prayer. Before he tries to build any bridges for Isaac, he's praying, Lord, give me a signal, give me a sign. You need to be in this. It can't just be my human reason. It can't just be about what I see. I trust you to see what I can't. Help me find the right gal. What does the Bible say next? It says, Jim, that even while he was on that mission of prayer, that as he had finished praying, he saw a young woman named Rebecca coming out with her water jug on her shoulder. 
She was the daughter of Bethuel, who was the son of Abraham's brother Nahar and his wife Malchi. Rebekah was very beautiful and old enough to be married. She was still a virgin. She went down to the spring and filled her water jug and came up again. Running over to her, the servant said, Please give me a, a little drink of water from your jug. Yes, my lord, she answered, have a drink. And she quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder and gave him a drink. When she had given him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels too, until they had had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jug into the water trough and ran back to the well to draw water for his camels. The servant then watched in silence, wondering whether or not the Lord had given him success in his mission, because she did exactly what he had prayed for. Yes. Obadiah, the whole story of Isaac and Rebekah, Abraham, the father of Isaac, and the old servant going to find a bride, all of that sounds, in a way, at first blush, so antiquated, so far removed from modern-day romance that you have to wonder, what could I learn from that story? And yet, when you get down underneath it, it's got some basic principles that work today still. First thing I notice is that in this romance, I mean, Isaac is hoping to get married, and his marriage prospects are actually being surrendered into the hands of a kind of a matchmaker to a third party. A servant. Well, it sounds almost like a a Broadway play, Fiddler on the Roof or Hello, Dolly or something, where you have a third party matchmaking. Yet we still see that today, don't we, Uh, just for lunch or we have all kinds of online dating sites. I'm not recommending those per se, but I am recommending the principle that if you're really serious about romance... Maybe you need to engage someone that you really, really trust, who knows you really well, to help build a bridge for the right person for you. Abraham's servant knows Isaac very well, and he knows the values frame and the context from which Isaac comes. He knows Isaac's temperament. He knows all there is to know about Isaac as a young man growing up. And now he's got his eyes open to find the right person. It's not strange for us to be introduced in romance by a friend, a a blind date, so to speak. Sometimes we just pass that off. But the truth is, if we really want a successful romance, maybe we need to be listening to and looking out for that servant guy, the person who can play that role in our lives to have his eyes open for the right match. In the end, it's the servant's intersection with Rebecca that's going to open the way for Isaac to have a wife for a lifetime. There's another part of that story that I think we need to own, and that is we ourselves may not be looking for romance, or we may ourselves already be engaged in a way that that romance is living in a relationship already established for us, but maybe we're the person who plays the servant role. We're the ones who help someone else bridge. Because we know their heart, and we not know only their that, hearts. God is before them, and God is before us. And we care for them, and maybe we can play a role if we just put our mind to it and and start looking around. Who's at the well here drawing water? Because (laughs) I've got a friend, I've got a buddy. And, you know, there's something to that. It's scary, though, in individualized Western culture to surrender something so important as a romantic trajectory to the counsel of someone else, because I'm afraid if I let that go, maybe I will somehow be betrayed. But in this case, at least, Isaac is honored by the way in which he defers to. And you just said something there 
which is another important part of the story, Obadiah, is God's before us. Yes. Did you catch what Abraham said to the servant? The servant goes, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure I could find anybody. They're not going to want to come back here to this place. And what does Abraham say? No, God's going ahead of you. God's going to do it. He's got an angel. His angels are before you. They are walking ahead of you. This isn't just about you. This is about you surrendering into a process that God is already unfolding. And that's an important lesson for us in romance today. I'm one who believes that if God has a life partner for you, he's going to lead you there if you'll trust him for it. And that's what Isaac has to do. That's what the servant has to do. That's what Abraham has to do. And in fact, that's what Rebecca's doing, because at the end of the story, Rebecca's going to give up her own familiar community and go to a far place. Why? Because she trusts God that he's walking ahead of her. Never underestimate the power of providence of God in your romantic future. Trust him. Pray about it. And look for it. Which brings us to what that servant really does. He prays, doesn't he? Yes, he does, Jim. It's pretty amazing. When I was a single guy, I was trying to decide whether to invite some girl out on dates from my university dorm window. And where I went to school, I could see the Fremont Bridge in Seattle, which is a drawbridge, and it goes up and down. And I remember, this is sounds, as I even say it, it sounds so preposterous, but I honestly would sit in my window and look and watch the Fremont Bridge and say, Lord, if I should be asking out Susie, make the bridge go up. Or, I mean, that sounds so goofy. <laughs> it's true, dear. I was trying to get my inner, uh, you know, mojo on to make the call, but I had to have a sense that God was in it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we just be foolish in our fleeces, but there is something to trusting God about developing a romantic relationship. And truth be told, the bridge didn't go up often enough for me to have a lot of dates. But the ones I had, I feel like the Lord blessed. Yes. There's another piece here at the last that I think is so important, Obadiah. And you and I uh, are both guys. You're somewhat younger than me, but you've been married how long? 32 years, Jim. Okay, I've been married 36 years. So even though you seem so much younger than me... <laughs> We have, you know, we've got several decades behind us in yes. marriage and so on. So I'm just suggesting we, we have a generational experience. But we also come from different worlds, you and I. Yes. Uh, you were born in Southern California. I mean, you were raised up in... Southern uh, California. We were born in Ohio, but transplant for Southern okay. California. And I was born in Seattle. You're an African-American by yes. descent. I, I'm an Irish guy by descent and grew up in a Scandinavian neighborhood where everyone looked like the same. And my point is that... We all have unique contexts and so on. But you and I, Obadiah, for all those differences, we also have some things in common because you were raised in a home that honored Jesus. Yes, I was, Jim. At an early age, even after my father died, we all come to know Christ, and Christ was the center of my life at the age 12 and got called to ministry when I was 17. And, and you, you went to church? And yes. It was important to you, and those values helped form you. The man you are today is consequent to a lot of that formation. And as different as my world was from yours, that I had the same thing. In fact, I came to Christ when I was 12. Yes. And we, you know, our church community was our community and, and all of those things framed me too. And what I'm trying to illustrate is, apart from all of geography and ethnicity and language and food preference and the way we dress, I mean, all of that, you can push all that aside, but there are common core values that must be shared to have a friendship or a relationship that can stand the test of time. And in romance, that really is true. And for believers listening today, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, 
your romantic prospects really need to be in a field of others who also believe Jesus is Lord. Don't try and mix that up. It's just a prescription yeah. for disaster. Now, you might meet someone who's an unbeliever who comes to embrace Jesus Lord. That's cool. But don't imagine that you can just be united forever and the two made one flesh and two hearts united and the kind of bonding and deepening of relationship over a lifetime, that that can occur if your faith journeys are so separated that they have nothing in common. All of this I'm finding in this story because that's the, the whole predicate. Abraham wants his son to find somebody who shares their common core values of faith. It doesn't matter where she lives. It's not so important how she dresses or even what she looks like. But I want my son to have a soulmate who understands the God that he understands. Wherever you are in the world today, whatever your journey, we want you to know God has a plan for your life, and he is walking ahead of you. And if you will surrender your life into his hands, he has a way of doing amazing things. And that's true in every area of your life. But today, as we're thinking about February and St. Valentine's Day, I want you to know he's willing even to hold your romance in his hand if you will allow yourself to trust him. So right now, take a step that way and pray with us. Our Father, we're so thankful today that you know us each one by name, that none of us have been created by chance, and that we're all in this world to do good by your purposes that you planned long ago that we could achieve that good now. You knew exactly who we would be and where we would need to be and what we must do for the right. That said, Lord, we also know that we have our own wills, and sometimes we have not paid attention to your voice, we have not surrendered into your will and way, and sometimes we've even run away from or ignored you. And that always ends in a way that causes us grief and sometimes others. Today, as we've been thinking about romance and thinking about Isaac and Rebecca, We just want to thank you for being willing to take our lives wherever we have been and making them today whole as we surrender into your care. We admit, Lord, that we are not competent ourselves to sort it all out and that we are not able to be forgiven of sin except by your love and grace represented in Christ Jesus. And so it's in his name we come before you and say, Lord, make us new, make us clean, and make us whole. And Father, help us to manage every area of our life according to your will. And today, especially, we surrender our romance. Whether we have a broken one, or just long for one, or have a healthy one, right now, today, wherever we are in that continuum, we surrender the romantic side of our life to you and ask you, Lord, to make it right and pleasing in your sight, life-giving for us and the one that you bring alongside us. Thanks for hearing our prayer, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thinks that I am unforgettable too. If you'd like to know more about how you can walk with God, if you'd like to know more about how you can see your world from heaven's view, give us a call. Just dial this number, 1-800-757-VIEW. That's one 800 757 8439, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're always by the phone, and we're always so glad to hear from you. And Obadiah, if someone didn't want to call, but they just wanted to go online, where would they find us? www.cbhviewpoint.org. Go to that website. You can read about the ministry there. You can send us an email. We'll be glad to read it and reply. 
or just send me a letter if you like. Address it to Jim Lyon, Viewpoint, Post Office Box 2420, Anderson, Indiana 46018, USA. But by whatever method you choose, please let us hear from you this week. Obadiah, thanks for coming alongside today. Glad to be back, Jim. You know what? Unforgettable. That's what I'd say a romantic intersection can be. And we're praying today for our listening audience that your romance this year will be unforgettable in the most positive way because it was surrendered into the hands of God. For all of us at the Viewpoint team, for all of us at Church of God Ministries, which is the host of our broadcast, this is Jim Lyon. Stay tuned.